SCP-6274, The Burnley Estate Ghosts are a pretty well-documented aspect of the SCP universe and the Foundation. There are plenty of anomalies that are ghosts or spirits in one form or another, and the Foundation has MTF specifically trained in capturing and containing these things. There are likely countless haunted houses across the earth that the Foundation just leaves alone because the ghosts there aren't bothering anyone, but sometimes a haunted house pops up that deserves a bit more attention. SCP-6274 is connected to a house that was once filled with spirits, but something's gone wrong, and now only a few remain. The Foundation's going to go in and figure out what happened, as well as learn more about the strange family that once lived there. SCP-6274 refers to a unique phenomenon affecting hauntings, apparitions, and spectral entities within the grounds of the Burnley Estate, located in Pollensby, Mississippi. This phenomenon involves a sudden intensifying and subsequent cessation in previously stable spectral activity. In other words, the fact that there's a bunch of ghosts in the Burnley Estate isn't the weird part, but the anomaly is messing with them. We're given an excerpt from a book titled Our Hauntings by Lyle Allen Burnley. It reads, of those abnormalities that the wider world is aware of, hauntings are by far the most ubiquitous. Every culture in the world has some form of the basic idea. When we die, we leave a part of ourselves behind. A ghost, a spirit, a revenant, some form of imprint on the world in which we lived, something that remains after we are gone. It has long since been known to us that these imprints are caused by any number of factors. The trite, unfinished business to an ennui that lingers even after death. No two hauntings are quite alike, though they share some common properties. Let us dispel the notion that all are translucent people wandering around after dark to scare children. A revenant can take any number of forms from a phenomenon to a place. While I cannot speak for all of them, those that I encountered in my home life at the estate were universally positive and helpful to a fault. The most universal property being that they do not leave. The occultists of yore thought that spirits could be banished or exorcised. They were incorrect. In the decades since society learned of their existence, methods have been proposed and tested to permanently remove them. All are prohibitively expensive, and none have ever worked. At best, their actions can be temporarily dampened, but they will never go away. The Foundation became aware of the Burnley Estate and its reputation for anomalous activity in 1961, during investigations into the town of Pollensby. The town of 17,000 was known to be a hub for anomalous activity since the 19th century, particularly the public library, but in-depth investigation was blockaded by public officials, 
many of whom were closely associated with the Burnley family. The Burnley family is a dynasty of occultists, socialites, alchemists, and astrologers formerly prominent in the American South. The most well-known and relevant of the family was Lyle Allen, a heresiographer, meaning a person that studies heresies, who was active in the 20th century and responsible for the downfall of the family. His death in 1978 resulted in the Burnley estate being surrendered to the Pollensby municipal government for the creation of a public park, as per the terms of his last will and testament. Several corpses were to be removed from the estate, and the foundation halted the transfer of the property in order to investigate the long-standing reports and claims of ghosts inhabiting the main house, which was colloquially known as Ellalyn. The vast majority of the reports were found to be true, although the functional risk and significance of each of the spectral entities were low enough not to warrant an SCP designation or containment. Ellalyn was placed under low-priority, outsourced containment, with Burnley's surviving family serving as caretakers, subject to annual certification from a member of Foundation staff with ESP capabilities. This model of containment worked with only minor interruptions until 1999, at which point no members of the Burnley family were still in residence at Ellalyn. The building had fallen into disrepair, and Foundation staff noted that formerly stable spectral entities were acting erratically and violently, so an MTF was sent in to investigate. Four agents were sent in, approaching the building from the private driveway, and note the presence of a single light on in a third floor window. They forcibly open the front door and enter into the foyer, finding the temperature to be noticeably colder inside than outside. The foyer is coated in a thick layer of dust, the floorboards creak, and the lights are off. They're instructed to explore the first floor, place surveillance equipment, and attempt to reactivate the main power, so they proceed down the hallway to the eastern wing and check the rooms as they go. They soon arrive at a door that will not open, and report sounds of what could be muffled breathing beyond it. After several minutes of listening, they draw a simple ceiling ward onto the door and proceed. Most of the dining halls on the first floor are completely empty, with two of them in total disarray and one set for a lavish, candlelit feast, but all the food is rotten and decomposing. The team reaches the end of the wing without encountering anything further notable, so they turn to explore the western wing. They pass by the sealed door on their way back, only to find that the ceiling ward is now absent, and dust has been kicked up around the door. The team members voice some apprehensiveness, but Command reminds them that there's nothing to be afraid of. They redraw the ceiling ward, place their surveillance equipment, and continue on. They enter into the Great Hall in the center of the building, finding an unidentified figure standing on the large center table, partially disemboweled. It glows with a slight orange light, but the team are instructed to ignore it and continue on into the western wing. 
In the western wing, they find many of the doors here to be sealed from the inside. They manage to enter one unlocked door into a bedroom, containing a large number of lit candles arranged around the room, as well as a four-post bed with curtains drawn and tied. The team attempts to open the curtains, but they fail to do so, instead placing their surveillance equipment. As they continue, the team doesn't seem to notice that one of their team members is no longer with them. Eventually they come across a fuse box on the second floor, and they reactivate the fuses. What follows is redacted from the log, but 22 minutes later, two of the agents awaken outside of the building, in the exterior gardening shed. One of them is holding an object, and they exit the building into the extensive, overgrown gardens. The central garden bed contains a large, flowering tree, with a human body embedded into the trunk, with its roots undulating around it. They return then to the main building through the large rear doors, finding the main kitchen to be covered in a sticky, tar-black fluid. They exit back into the dining hall with the decomposing food, even though this doesn't match the previous layout of the house. The table is now dominated by the nude cadaver of the previously missing agent. The two exit back into the eastern hallway, passing by the sealed door as they rush to the great hall. The door is still sealed, but a single, spinely finger protrudes from beneath the doorway. The unidentified figure is no longer present in the Great Hall, but now an unidentified body hangs from a noose disappearing into the rafters, slowly swinging from side to side. One of the agents draws her sidearm, but the following hour and a half is redacted from the log. One agent's corpse is then recovered from the porch at dawn, along with a manuscript. Despite the unfortunate loss of the entire team, the surveillance equipment that they had placed around the house continued to function, offering a detailed log of the spectral activity inside. Three hotspots of activity were determined, the Silverton Room, the Suite, and the Garden. The door to the wine cellar was determined to not be a hotspot, but its anomalous resistance to being opened has placed it under scrutiny. Attempts to contact or locate any members of the Burnley family in order to return the estate to baseline activity have so far been unsuccessful. The manuscript that the team had recovered is the one written by Lyle Allen Burnley, Our Hauntings and appears to have been written on a typewriter before being bound by hand. It lacks a cover or other peripherals, and large portions of the text appear to be absent. The second page contains a dedication to Henry, Matilda, Arthur, and Laura Burnley, stating that they are the best he's ever known. The first chapter of the book contains a short history of hauntings and ghosts in human culture, while the remainder of the chapters are each centered around a particular spectral entity that Lyle had observed in Ellilin, including details of schedule, history, communication, habits, personality, and his own personal anecdotes with them. In several portions, however, he lapses off into tangents unrelated to the mass of the text. 
Of the 71 spectral entities described in the text, only three have been observed by the Foundation after the recontainment of the manor, ones designated by Lyle as the Feast, the Brood, and the Totem. Their behavior, however, is currently extremely different from that observed and described by Lyle. The manuscript also includes instructions for a ritual seance that he claimed could allow for communication with the entities. We're provided another excerpt from the book, this time detailing the feast. It reads, The feast is an entity inhabiting the Silverton dining room, among the most docile of those that inhabit our home. As a boy, it was a favorite plaything, as a young man, an endless source of amazement for the ladies of the town when they came up to the manor. As an older man, a close confidant for when one wishes to shut out the troubles of the world with food and drink without conversation. It is an arrangement of delicacies and perfectly cooked meats with aged wines and all manner of side dishes. Roasted hams, seared steaks, cooked goose and veal. The exact contents change regularly. I remember Arthur and I at breakfast making a game of guessing what would be on the table by nightfall. He adored the room nearly as much as I. Like many other revenants in Ellalyn, it seeks only to live in happy coexistence with the current generation of Burnleys inhabiting the home. For the feast, this means providing delicious food and the enjoyment that comes from a full belly. After much time in the family's archives in the library, I ventured forth a guess that the feast was once Abraham Burnley, a noted gastronome and gourmet, dead in 1845. I have had little luck in communing with him in the usual method. It seems he is happy to limit his interaction with the world to one's taste buds. So, a ghost that just constantly provides gourmet food for residents of the house sounds pretty amazing, but that's not what the feast is currently doing. Since the Foundation has arrived, it's been observed regularly and erratically changing the arrangement and spread with no apparent schedule while exclusively producing rotten, decomposing, maggot-ridden, or otherwise inedible food. On two occasions it produced a carved human corpse as the centerpiece of the meal. Food and drink has been violently thrown across the room, and several times it has produced food containing razor blades, shrapnel, and live termites. The usual method that Lyle mentioned for communing with the feast presumably refers to the classical seance, which he repeatedly cited as an effective means of communication with other spectral entities in the manor. As such, a seance was performed by a Foundation-associated medium in the Silverton dining room. The participants of the seance dim the lights, seal the curtains, and sit at the table as the medium asks to speak with the feast. The large carving of decomposing venison on the table begins to undulate, and the medium begins to hold her head in her hands, saying that something is wrong. Something else then speaks, 
and says that there is no spirit to be found here, only absences, only nothing. They don't see, only you see. Nothing is not a something. There is nothing to be afraid of in the dark. The medium asks the spirit what it's afraid of, and it responds that the cellar can only be opened by the masters of the house and tells them to look below. The seance then ends as the curtains open and the table's spread is revealed to have been replaced with several hundred glasses of a dark red wine. No activity has been recorded from the feast since. We're then given two more excerpts from our hauntings, the first of which is about spirits in general and reads, A misconception that ghosts, spirits, revenants, whatever you choose to call them, are utterly and totally divorced from the world which we inhabit. That their interaction is limited to that of a common poltergeist, ha, throwing vases and banging together pots and pans like a choleric child. Not so. Revenants are not altogether unlike living humans. They feel emotion. They are driven by something, though they do not know what. One could say this goes for most all creatures. They rage when they are upset, when they are angry, bitter, frightened of something. A wise man I met in Jordan some years ago told me that every revenant is anchored by something in the living world, be it a person an object, a location, something that they left behind. When this anchor is removed, the revenant ceases to exist. What remains is something else. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The second excerpt is about the brood and reads... As a child, I was warned against going into the bedroom in the western wing. We all knew the one. It was never locked. Burnleys do not believe in stifling exploration. But I was told quite sternly by my father that I would be solely and entirely responsible for what I found inside. Decades later, I told Matilda the same thing when she asked what was inside. Naturally, it stopped neither of us. None of the revenants in Burnley Manor are dangerous, but a fair few simply wish to be left alone. The brood is one of these. I have no idea how old it is. I have asked everyone and searched to the bottom of the archives, but no one seems to know where it came from. Presumably it does not predate the creation of the Western Wing itself in 1798, but who can say for certain? The brood takes the form of a woman in the throes of childbirth in her bedchambers. She screams, cries, and generally spurns visitors, 
reasonably enough. The curtains open for only a few seconds, but in those seconds, any questions you ask the poor thing are answered with all the truth of the universe. My father was right. Knowledge is not a burden a child should bear. Not a day goes by where I do not remember Matilda weeping as she hugged me. Since the Foundation has put in surveillance equipment, however, the brood has been observed only constantly weeping in a low tone, never screaming, crying, or otherwise producing loud sounds. The curtains around its bed never open, although it occasionally hurls small objects outside of the bed, impacting them against the wall. All of the candles in the room also momentarily dim on occasion. Another seance is held, as the medium calls out to the brood, and an antique baby rattle is thrown from the bed and collides with the wall. The brood then responds, in a whisper, and asks if they will help her. She says that nothing's coming out, and her family is no longer in this house. She asks where they have taken them, but the medium says that they haven't done anything to her family so the brood asks why they are here then. Before the medium can respond, however, the brood begins to shout that something is finally coming, and says to get the gun before breaking out into a scream. The candles then surge and snuff out, and the brood goes quiet. The medium calls out again, but the other voice from before responds, saying that they are talking to a shell. They are wasting their time with ghosts of ghosts, and there is something greater to fear, something larger that is coming. Elalin is a microcosm of an example, and there is something eating away at the Burnley Manor. There were once hundreds of ghosts here, but now there are none. They have two questions to answer. What can kill a ghost? And what does a ghost leave behind? The medium responds that you can't kill a ghost, but the voice just responds by asking where the brood is then. The candles in the room then all relight simultaneously, and the curtains of the bed open to reveal a blackened, charred mass inside that twitches before falling still. No activity has been recorded from the brood since. We're then given two more excerpts from our hauntings, the first of which is about the nature of the spirits of the Burnley estate. It reads, The Burnley ghosts are like no other. Haunted manners are a dime a dozen. Revenants angry that they have been forgotten by the world, acting out as crowds of unknowing fools further their suffering. A tragic story by any angle. But here, our ghosts are not unknowns, forgotten by the world. They are remembered. Burnleys do not shy away from our ghosts. We approach them with open arms. They may not be of this mortal coil, but they are still family, and family is the most important thing. 
Family is what we leave behind in this world, our legacy and our mark. We also leave behind our spirits, our revenants. This book is a collection of the ghosts of Burnley Manor and the place they hold in our family. The family is the anchor for all of them. I do not like to imagine a world in which that anchor no longer exists, and so I shall not. But when I walk the grounds at night, my children have all but gone. I realize I may very well be the last Burnley. Without me, what will happen to this place? The memories I have forged here with my children. My place is to remember what my ancestors have left behind. What will I leave behind? The second excerpt is about the totem and reads, The totem is a strange thing. I remember long afternoons spent running through the gardens with my brothers and sisters. The groundskeeper hated us, how we would ruin his perfectly tended shrubs. Then we'd be called in for dinner by the maid and wolf down the feast, before spending the evening lounging beneath the totem. My grandfather sat me on his lap and told me its story one day. His own grand-uncle had done a service for the Indians that still dominated our land back then. The specifics of the service are unclear to me, but it was great enough that when he died, they paid their debt and he came back as a sapling in the grounds of the garden that he loved so much. The fruit he produced were one of a kind, a large round thing the size of your fist with a thick purple skin and a juicy red inside. He was our oldest family member. We adored his stories, regaling us with cowboy tales, and he was a tree in spirit happy to watch the world grow around him. So, the totem was an old spirit taking the form of a tree that told stories of older times. Since the Foundation's arrival, however, it's been observed using prehensile vines to catch and consume small animals, as well as repeatedly attacking nearby personnel unprovoked. It releases an unknown substance into the soil around it, turning it into a highly corrosive mud, and drags prey into the soil where it seems to digest them for nutrients. Due to these dangers, the seance was conducted remotely, and as the medium calls out to it, several vines twist and unwrap from the tree trunk. The medium tells it to stop, and it does so, before asking if it can speak. The totem responds that speaking is a waste, and continues to move its vines towards the microphone. The medium says that it was one of the first Burnleys, but it responds that whatever was here once may have been a Burnley, but now it is a Burnley-shaped hole, the absence of familiarity. This house was once filled with spirits, memories enduring after demise, as the Burnley clan was beyond death. The medium asks what changed, to which it says that a light shone through a glass darkly. 
an action that was noted in the previous seances without comment. The other voice then speaks again, saying that something cosmic turned its eyes on a family in Mississippi, leaving behind nothingness in its wake. It says to look to the skies, little one. A twig then snaps, and the seance ends. No activity has been recorded from the totem since. We're given one last excerpt from the book, which reads, I was looking through my archives just the other day when I came across an old journal of mine from an expedition into the Iron Eye. They have a rich and ancient culture, and as with all cultures, the aspect of mysticism and spirituality was strong. I shared my knowledge of certain histories and heresies, and was provided with their own stories in turn. One story was of a man whose father had been killed in battle. He was told by a shaman that his father's spirit, his revenant, was watching over him, and would continue to do so for his son and his son's son, and so on. He was comforted by this knowledge. Many years later, the man was subject to a curse from a rival house, something to plague misfortunes upon his family. In those weeks, he felt a presence by his side, one he did not even realize was there, change, morph from something to nothing, like a black hole on his shoulder, constantly pulling, the unignorable presence of nothingness. The shaman told him plainly, his father's spirit was no longer the thing walking by his side. It troubles me. I have seen what my forefathers have left behind. I leave behind four wonderful children and two wives. I leave behind a body of work as impressive as any scholar of the paranormal but my children have no interest in the occult. The family's secrets will die with me. Whatever I leave behind will be a harbinger of things to come. At this point, the Foundation was approached by Laura Norman, the disowned daughter of Lyle. In an interview, she says that she hasn't spoken to anyone about her family in decades, and hasn't seen this house in years. It being filled with spirits was just a fact of life for them, something to work around. None of them were ever afraid here, as they weren't raised to be afraid of ghosts. They thought of ghosts as the bedroom you could go into if you wanted to be alone, or the spirit that'll tell you a secret if you bring it a cup of tea. Lyle raised them to be inquisitive, and she says that he was larger than life, and there will never be anyone quite like him. She explains that he disowned her because he loved her, setting her free the only way he knew how. But now she's back here again, and they still haven't explained what's wrong with the place. The researcher says that all of the spectral entities have disappeared from here, and they don't know why. When they arrived, 
Three of them were still here, albeit violent and spiteful, but they're gone now as well. Laura says that none of them were ever violent, so they must have provoked them somehow. She doesn't understand why any of them would leave though, as these spirits are as much a part of the estate as the walls. The researcher explains that her father left extensive notes on the spirits, and their behavior was completely unlike his observations. The foundation's medium claims that they felt… scared, and Lyle's notes go on at length about his fears at what he would leave behind, now that the rest of the family is gone. Laura asks what they were scared of, and the researcher says that they don't know, but whatever it is, it's likely in the wine cellar. Laura, however, responds that they don't have a wine cellar. Ultrasound investigation of the grounds revealed the presence of three objects buried two meters deep near the house. An excavation team dug up the surrounding ground and found three decomposing bodies, two males and one female. DNA identification revealed them to be Henry, Arthur, and Matilda Burnley, the three legal children of Lyle. They had been dead for less than six months. Later, Laura agrees to go into the house and attempt to enter the wine cellar. She says that she grew up in this house, so she's not afraid of anything in the dark here. She steps towards the wine cellar door, as the finger beneath it continues to tap against the ground. She says that she doesn't remember this door, and places her hand on the doorknob. The finger retracts behind the door, and Laura opens it, finding a descending staircase that plummets into pitch darkness. She begins to walk down the steps, commenting that she can't see anything here, even with the flashlight, and it feels really cold. She comments that she didn't even know there was a wine cellar underneath the house, but then remembers that there was a wine cellar, as her dad took her down there once when she was four, but the entrance was outside of the house. He showed her the empty space and said that he was going to turn it into a juice factory, as he didn't like to talk about alcohol in front of them. She reaches the bottom of the steps, and says that there's nothing down here. The researcher asks if it's just an empty room, but she says that there's literally nothing, meaning nothingness. There's no wine cellar, just like there are no ghosts in the manor anymore. They're just holes, the spaces where things used to be. Something is eating her family, and this is what is left. Nothing. This is what they leave behind. After a pause, the same voice from before, now listed as coming from something known as Harbinger, says that there is nothing to be afraid of in the dark. Laura calls out to it, believing it to be her dad, and then all communications cease. Alright, so we have a haunted house that became no longer haunted through the presence of this harbinger entity, turning these things into nothingness. 
While the article certainly works on its own as a piece of rising dread and tension, it's connected to two other bits of larger canon. One is the Burnley family itself, particularly Lyle, which has a handful of other articles related to it, largely covering Lyle's experiences as a studier of heresies. The other bit is related to Harbinger, which was a series of articles between SCP-6270 and 6279 that all connected to this Harbinger entity in some way, an entity of nothingness that left only nothingness in its wake, all well warning about a greater threat looming on the horizon. I covered one other of these Harbinger articles in the past, SCP-6273, The Empty Skin, but they are mostly self-contained and don't point to any larger bits of connected canon. The overall theme of this article is on what we leave behind when we pass, whether it be a ghost, material possessions or records, memories, or perhaps absolutely nothing at all. The Burnleys were raised not to fear death in any way, as death was just a transition into a different phase, but the ghosts of their family members were still family. What happens, however, when those ghosts are removed as well? And what do those ghosts leave behind? The ultimate oblivion of nothingness can be a scary concept to think about, but sometimes, perhaps, it's better than the alternatives.